0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And then you can also check out my blog and that is at CagerRedux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. com. right. Today is November 9th, 2021, and we're going to talk about this constitutional committee that the NCAA set up, and I actually recorded an entire episode yesterday on Monday, November eighth, assuming that we weren't gonna have any of the committee's work product until around November fifteenth. But as I was finishing up that episode, I went back to the NCAA website to look for something and I saw that the Constitutional Committee released its initial draft of the Constitutional Makeover. So I held off publishing the episode because I thought it was mooted or or some of it was mooted. And then as I sat down and read through this Document. It's about an 18-page document, and the way that it was rolled out on the NCAA website and with Bob Gates's cover memo, I realized that it raises as many questions as it answers. And some of the things that I was talking about in that episode that I had been working on, that really were designed to set the table for an analysis of this constitutional committee, its purpose, and its ultimate work product, were even more relevant after I read that draft. And there are some important things structurally that are going on here, I think, that really reemphasize in my mind my suspicions about what the purpose of this constitutional committee was and what its ultimate objective was. And that is largely built around preserving the NCAA bureaucratic state. But the way that this constitutional draft goes about doing that is uh, really breathtaking in the way that it absolves the NCAA of any responsibility for anything Most of the functions that the NCAA serves now are being sent down to the divisional level and then to the conference level and then to the school level. And the infractions and enforcement process seems to have been gutted at the national level and that's going to be done at the divisional level and it's a very interesting document. Now I want to go through it in detail and talk about each of the components but what you really see is an NCAA that serves no function other than to negotiate media rights contracts to bring in as much money as it possibly can from the March Madness contract and then to enjoy the benefits of that money and the authority to spread it around to enough downstream stakeholders to make them happy enough and content enough that they're just going to say everything is okay at the NCAA. And that really, I think, calls into question even more the very purpose of the NCAA. And it's not serving any of the traditional functions that it has served. So as Bob Gates put it in the very beginning of this process. He said the NCAA needs to align its authorities with its responsibilities. And on the backside of this draft, as I read it, and again, it raises some questions because it's not a model of clarity and it looks like it was pretty quickly cobbled together and the committee's been on a, a short time frame, And that's a, an important issue as well. But under this draft, the NCAA has zero meaningful responsibility for anything in the regulation of college sports. And it has the exclusive authority to keep that March Madness money coming in and doing whatever the hell it wants to with it. As I'm going to explain in more detail when I break down this draft constitution it looks to me like this is another situation where the power five are using that march madness money as a bargaining chip to get what they need behind the scenes and then to let the ncaa just drift along with that march madness money and as the value of the football product goes up and up and up that march madness money is less and less important to the power five football interests And that's another important thing to talk about. So what I'm going to do is kind of transition this November 9th episode back into the November 8th episode, because I think that the background and setup that I was doing yesterday, November 8th, before this draft was released by the NCAA, is really important to understanding what the thinking was going into this draft and the external influences that shaped it. So I have truncated some of this analysis to conform to the fact that we now have a work product, but I've left in the essential components of the setup. And then at the end of the episode, I'll talk a little bit more about where I'm headed with this and what the upcoming episodes will look like. So now I'm going to do something that seems a little bit unusual, but let's just see what happens. What the heck? I'm just going to turn it over to where I started yesterday's episode, and then I will come back around on the back side and uh, close things out with a fresh look at where we're going to be headed next. All right, here we go. Today is November 8th, twenty. 20- 21, and we're going to start diving into this constitutional committee, why it was formed, what it proposes to do, and what I think might really be going on behind the scenes here, because there's some interesting moving parts that are swirling around this effort to, as Bob Gates described it, align NCAA authorities and responsibilities. And Bob Gates, remember, is the chair of this committee. He is one of five independent members of the NCAA Board of Governors, its highest governing board and the only association-wide governing board. And I've talked quite a bit about him. Uh, Gates has a really amazing resume. And relevant to this constitutional committee, he was the president of Texas a and from 2002. Two to 2006, and that's relevant experience. So, what I want to do in uh, setting the table for discussion on this constitutional committee is just talk about some of the broad themes that, that Gates has used to talk about this committee and its work. And the first one, and this is really, really important, and that is the NCAA's quest for relevance. You know, Gates just came out and said that from the very beginning that. On the backside of what's happened in the summer of 2021, the NCAA is in a battle for relevance. But what does that mean? What does relevance mean in the fall of 2021 and heading into 2022? And to answer that question, you have to look at the role that the NCAA has played really for the last 70 years, beginning with the early Walter Byers years in 1951. And that is really a multi-pronged purpose. The first, and I think the most important, is to act as the national regulatory agency responsible for enforcing the overall cap on the cost of labor. And since 1956, that has basically been the cost of a full athletics scholarship. And it is an athletics scholarship, and that's important to remember. The second thing is to act as the national enforcer of all of the amateurism-based NCAA rules that relate not just to compensation limits, but also to regulating the recruiting game, the battle for competitive advantage, disadvantage, and the talent acquisition market, which is really the heart and soul of big-time college sports, where the money is here. And the NCAA is a big entity, and it has three separate divisions that have very little in common. And you may ask yourself, for example, what does Ohio State University, one of the largest public universities in the country, have in common with Mary Baldwin College, a Division III school in Virginia? And the answer is virtually nothing. And when it comes to their athletics products, they have no business being uh, on the same planet because they're not on the same planet. Yet under this NCAA Big Tent umbrella, these disparate interests have been brought together, and I've talked about that before, and the NCAA gets some benefit from the Mary Baldwins of the world because the big-time college sports products get to snuggle into this amateurism forest and uh, pretend to be legitimate nonprofit entities. So you have this unwieldy system with 1,100 schools, but in reality, There are only 65 schools that matter, and those are the 65 schools in the Power 5 conferences. And the rest of the NCAA, to one degree or another, are simply window dressing to serve the interests of those 65 schools. So what else has the NCAA done at the national level that has made it relevant to the business of big time college sports, and that is providing the only enforcement mechanism, the infractions and enforcement process through which All of these rules can be applied and enforced, and that's been the subject of criticism for decades, and we've talked about that as well, and we're going to talk about that some more when we get to the NCAA Accountability Act, this bill that was introduced just last week that would basically cut the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process off at the knees through an act of Congress. And then the last thing that has made the NCAA relevant at the national level is Through the distribution of revenue from the March Madness contract. And we've talked about that as well. The NCAA, because of the Board of Regents decision in 1984, doesn't get a single penny of football revenue. And that money stays with the Power Five, and to a lesser extent, the Group of Five. And they only share it within that small universe of schools, 130 schools out of the 1,100. And for all intents and purposes, really only the Power Five, the 65 schools that keep about 80% of all that football revenue in the broader football marketplace. So the NCAA relies exclusively on March Madness money, But they take that money and then they send it downstream to Divisions 2 and Divisions 3. And that's really important here. And Bob Gates admits as much because in this process of rewriting the NCAA Constitution, it requires buy-in from the entire membership because in order to amend the NCAA Constitution, two-thirds of all member institutions across the 1100 schools and all three divisions have to agree to those changes. And we're going to talk about that as well. And then the last thing that the NCAA has done at the national level is to sponsor, coordinate, and run national championships. The NCAA is not involved in any regular season programming. It only deals with championships and it pays for out of the March Madness money championships in every division one, two, and three sport with the exception of FBS football. They have nothing to do with the college football playoff, nothing to do with the big time bowl games. And that's part of the problem here, the structural division between big time football and the rest of the NCAA interests. And when I get to it, I'm going to talk about the unique position that elite division one men's basketball plays here because they're really caught in the middle and they're being used as a bargaining chip essentially by the power five football interest because the ncaa is desperate to hang on to that march mandis money because that is one of its Best pathways to remaining relevant at the national level. And the reason that money is so important is because the NCAA can create dependence downstream. And that is expressing itself now. Divisions 2 and Divisions 3, they want their block grant grants and they want their championships. And all these uh, non-revenue sports want their championships. And 85 of the 90 championships that the NCAA sponsors lose money. And the only one that makes any meaningful money, really the only important championship, is March Madness. That's the long and short of it. So 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 you have some interesting and very powerful dynamics playing behind the scene here. But through national championships, NCAA thinks it can make itself indispensable at the national level. So what is that? Five things. And when you look at the two most important things, and those are enforcing this overall fixed price of labor in high-level Division One and the Power Five and FBS levels, and then having the infractions and enforcement infrastructure to really bring the hammer down on schools that step outside of those compensation limits. You get outside of those two, and the rest of those things really aren't things that have to be done by the NCAA at the national level. So with the overall compensation limit at risk because of Austin, and this house suit out in California is important, too. And then the enforcement and infractions process getting some scrutiny here that it really hasn't gotten in a while. And we're talking about a an important piece of legislation that would basically federalize the infractions and enforcement process and place the NCAA enforcement mechanism into federal receivership through the Department of Justice. So if the NCAA doesn't have those two things, they really have little of value to offer to the the power players in big time college sports, and that's the power five. And they have over the years, gained control of NCAA governance through bullying and threats to leave. And we've talked about all of those as well. So, this is a really interesting time for the NCAA. And in order to frame some of these issues, I want to use an interview that Bob Gates gave in a podcast series that is run by the NCAA. It's an NCAA product, it's done by uh, former ESPN analyst Andy Katz. And I think he has a relationship with the Big Ten Network for college basketball analysis. But he also is employed by the NCAA, and he has this podcast called The Social Series, and he talks about all the tough issues of the day. And it's essentially uh, infomercial material for the NCAA. But he had an interview with Bob Gates on September 10th of 2021. So this is a little over a month after Gates has announced the existence of this constitutional committee, that he's going to be the face of it, that he's going to be the chair of it. And then they announced the the members, uh, I think, around August 10th or 11th. And then the committee has been doing its work, supposedly. They're in the listening phase, as Gates put it. But all the initial descriptions of this constitutional committee were so vague, it was almost impossible to figure out exactly what issues were on the radar screen. But in this... Social series podcast interview Gates sort of gets into a little more detail, and you can start to see what some of the issues are, and then what some of the conflicts may be behind the scenes, and and who the actors are. And to set up my discussion of this interview on the social series podcast, I want to talk about who is on this constitutional committee. I talked a little bit about that in the last episode. And I had intended in this episode just to look at the composition of both this Constitutional Committee and then this Transformation Committee that came out from the Division I Board of Directors in late October. But I'm going to stick with the Constitutional Committee here and then get to the the Board of Directors Transformation Committee in another episode. But there are 28 members of this Constitutional Committee, and it runs across three divisions. And I want to just talk about the categories of people that are on this committee and then some of the numbers, and then a little bit about the the demographic of the committee. But this is an inside job. I I really emphasized that in the last episode. This is an NCAA inside job. They have circled the wagons here, and they are not allowing any person who's not in the inner sanctum to have a, a seat at this table. So... You have a good number of university presidents and chancellors, as you would expect, because the entire NCAA governance model is built around presidential leadership and control. And again, that came from the Knight Commission in the early 1990s and has been in the formal governance process since the mid-1990s, and it has been a miserable failure. And then you have conference commissioners. There are, I think, five conference commissioners across all three divisions. Then you have athletics directors. So when you look at these classifications, the presidents and chancellors, the conference commissioners, and the athletics directors across all three divisions really dominate this board. Let me just look real quick. So that's 15. 20 of the 28 members are in one of those three categories. Then you have two independent board of governors members, Robert Gates and Mary Sue Coleman, and they are true believers in the NCAA interests. You have three student athletes, and I, I mentioned those in the last episode, not a single revenue-producing athlete. We have a representative from Division One who is a former track athlete, a a man, and then two women, one from division two, one from division three in non-revenue sports. And then you have one faculty athletic representative, and that is a formal position under NCAA governance. And it's defined in the NCAA division one manual. And they basically are promoting institutional interests, but are supposed to act as a liaison between the academic side and the athletics side. So you have 28 members, all insiders, not a single external person to the NCAA decision-making process at any level. And then When you look at how those seats are allocated within the various stakeholder groups, the Power Five, the Group of Five, Lower Level Division One, and then Divisions Two and Three, you see that the Power Five really don't have a lot of power here. There are seven Power Five representatives. So only 25% of this committee is comprised of Power Five interests. You have a couple of Group of Five interests, and I would say they're largely allied with the Power Five. But the Lower level Division One and then Division Two and Division Three interests outweigh the big time football interests and the. Uh the Power Five, Group of Five, interests. And that is not an environment that the Power Five likes to operate in. They want to be in control of the narrative, and they always have been. And and all these struggles for power and control and access to money over the decades, going back to the 1970s, really, the big-time football interests, particularly the Southern football interests, have found a way to impose their will on the structure of college sports and the operation of the NCAA. So let's talk just briefly about some of the demographics because that's important as well. Because one of my themes in this podcast has been that when push comes to shove, the most important decision-making rooms are dominated by white decision-makers and disproportionately white male decision-makers. So of this 28-member committee, there are 16 men and 12 women, 57% to 43%. 20 or 71% are white, 6 or 21% are African-American. We have one Hispanic female and one Asian man. That's the the basic demographic profile of, of a lot of the NCAA decision-making bodies. And it is mostly white and it has disproportionate representation of white men. And I'll just say again, I'm not a single revenue-producing athlete, which means not a single... African American revenue producing athlete. We don't have any African American football players from Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson or any basketball players from Kentucky or Duke or UCLA or Michigan. We don't have that kind of representation. And that is just a glaring omission in a business model that's built around using the labor and the revenue generated by labor in those two sports that are disproportionately. African American. And so you have African American men under this collegiate model that's reinforced in some of the thinking that is going into this constitutional committee that you maximize revenue in football and men's basketball and you send it cross stream or downstream to a beneficiary class that's overwhelmingly white. And one way to disguise the obvious inequity in that business model is to deny the laborers a seat at the table. They just are not welcome. And they don't want to we don't want to hear from you. Just Sit down, shut up, be happy with what we're giving you. So let's go to this interview. And as I go through it, I'm gonna identify some issues that are important issues that I will address in subsequent episodes because they require standalone treatment. But one of Katz's first questions after introducing gates and this was really a commercial for gates so the first half of the podcast is talking about Gate's resume and his experience and all that stuff and again he has a very impressive resume and broad experience and the first question is why do we need change now what's happened recently that gave rise to this constitutional committee Gates frames the his response to that question in terms of how things have changed since he was the president of Texas am and again he was president from 2002 to 2006. And those were the Miles Brand years. And that was the time when Miles Brand was really formulating his conceptualization of the collegiate model that he really presented in its final form in that 2006 State of the Association speech. And I've talked so much about that, but that was a critical time in big-time college sports. And it was also a time where this model of presidential leadership and control was still viable, even though the evidence, the early evidence and the first decade of presidential leadership and control wasn't very favorable. And even the Knight Commission had to acknowledge that in his 2001 report. But that was an interesting time to be a university president at a big-time school. So Gates has some interesting experience. But he basically says in the 15-ish years since he was a university president, that more money has come into the system and that makes things different now. He says there's more focus on inclusion, diversity, and gender equity. I'm not quite sure what he's getting at. I think what he was trying to say is that there is a broader awareness of athlete interests, however they're defined, whether it's through the lens of diversity, whether it's through the lens of gender equity, or whether it's through the lens of athletes' rights, that you have discussions going on now that are actually influencing decision makers outside of the NCAA, because those discussions within the NCAA have gone nowhere. And these NCAA doesn't want to talk about those issues, but they were subtexts in so many of the conversations that were occurring in Congress and state legislatures and in the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that's... Percolating underneath. And then he mentions the the Supreme Court case, state legislatures, and then interest in Congress that have changed the equation. And he says none of those things were on the scene when he was a university president in 2002 to 2006. But what's interesting about the way that Gates talked about why now is that he doesn't talk about it in a direct and honest way. The fact that the NCAA has been dragged kicking and screaming by these external regulatory threats or that the NCAA's Iron Throne campaign beginning in 2019 was specifically targeted to eliminating all of those external regulatory threats. All the things that have brought the NCAA to the table through this constitutional committee are the direct product of the three external regulatory threats that he identified. While he talks about interest in Congress That's misleading because that interest in Congress is the direct product of NCAA lobbying and behind the scenes pressure and influence peddling and everything it could do to gain an advantage in its campaign in the Senate, primarily in 2020 and into 2021, to completely shut down the athletes' rights movement. And they failed. And they failed. And then you had the unanimous U.S. Supreme Court decision. You had the absolute failure, of the NCAA to do anything voluntarily on name, image, and likeness, and at the 11th hour, seven hours and 40 minutes before the July 1st deadline when these state laws were going into effect, They just waved the white flag and dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions. And that really was part of what started this whole discussion through Mark Emmert about sending stuff back to the conferences and back to the schools and the NCAAs and national authority doesn't need to have all this stuff on its responsibility plate at the national level. It was just ridiculous on its face because... Through its Iron Throne campaign in the Senate, they were trying to acquire more national power, not less. They just failed. And so this Constitutional Committee is really the direct product of NCAA failure up and down the chain of command at the NCAA national office. And I just want to reemphasize something that I have talked a lot about in prior episodes, and that is that if the NCAA had been successful in Congress and in the Supreme Court, To aggregate as much national power as it could get its hands on and essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement, we're not having this discussion. There would not be a Constitution Committee. There would not be any concern about aligning responsibilities and authorities. We would be moving along business as usual under the old NCAA status quo. That is so important to remember here because this about face has nothing to do with a a genuine attempt to make structural changes in the NCAA because those structural changes don't make any sense. That issue, this this structural inefficiency of the NCAA, all the things that this Constitution Committee is talking about changing have been part of the NCAA system for decades, and they are completely unrelated to any of these extraordinary events that have played out in 2020. 21. So let's not be confused about why this discussion is occurring right now. The NCAA is not talking about these issues because it chooses to. It is talking about these issues because it has been forced to. So Then Katz transitions into a discussion about what the process is. So he asks Gates to just outline the process, where they are in the process, what the end game is. And Gates gives us a smorgasbord of empty phrases and president speak. And he sounds at times a lot like Mark. But he says the f- first part of the process is simply listening and learning. And he talks about the first month really being a listening and learning process, and they're reaching out to stakeholders and, and all that stuff. And he also talks about two other things, specific things that are important. But the committee got a briefing from the Knight Commission, and I believe that was in mid-September. That coincided with this Constitutional Committee survey, which I talked about in the last episode, and I'm going to do separate episodes on both of those. Because I think both of those initiatives and both of those work products really illustrate how out of touch the NCAA decision-makers are with the reality on the ground. But the Knight Commission was suggesting that, that we should be pulling football revenue, this revenue that after Board of Regents was completely the domain of big-time football interests. They say, we want to tap into some of that money to send it downstream, just like we send the March Madness money downstream, and they have a plan to do that. I'm going to I'll talk about that. And then this survey, the results of which worked out when the Knight Commission made its pitch to the Constitution Committee. and that survey was a train wreck for the NCAA, and I'm going to do a separate episode on that. And if there was ever evidence of the death of the role of presidents in the control and conduct of intercollegiate athletics, it was this survey, because only 37% of Division One presidents responded to the survey. The very people who are supposed to be in charge of the most important products in the entire college sports marketplace, big-time football and big-time men's basketball, they sat it out. 63% of Division I presidents didn't bother to fill out a 20-minute survey. We'll, we'll get into that in some more detail. And then Gates says that they received a briefing on how the NCAA gets its money and then how it spends its money. And then he says that When it comes to the actual Constitution, they'll be restating some things. And he says that he wants the Constitution to reflect some accommodations of the new name, image, and likeness market. And then he also talks about some basic structural issues with the goal of devolving responsibilities to divisions. And that's consistent with what Emmert was saying after the the nil debacle in late June, early July. And it was, look, we need to send some of this stuff that's been at the national level downstream, because there's really not stuff that we should be doing, but they don't say specifically what that is. Then he invokes the infractions and enforcement process. And he says that process is broken. And when I heard that, I just laughed because that's exactly what the Commission on College Basketball said in its report in April of 2018, when it recommended the independent accountability resolution process to cure some of the conflicts of interest that are built into the existing infractions and enforcement process. And NCAA just gave the Commission on College Basketball the double-barreled up yours, and they implemented those rules in a way that was completely inconsistent with what the commission recommended. And now what's left of this independent accountability resolution process is under attack by the Power Five, and it, it looks like Gates might be on board with that. It's not clear. But he says this process takes too long, and we don't get decisions quickly enough. And there are all kinds of problems with consistency. All the things that external commentators have been criticizing in that process for 50 years, you know, so so we're taking it up now. And then he says that the process is gonna be really this committee putting options to the membership are on a very tight deadline. He acknowledged that. And he said, there's no secret solution hidden in a desk drawer. This is an open process. There was a lot of stuff to to look at in, in his response to that question about what's the process, where are we headed, what's the end game. One of the things that became apparent to me in hearing Gates's description of what they were looking at, some of these issues they were looking at, there's going to be some tension between what the truly association-wide issues are and then what the division-specific issues are. And when you go to the NCAA Division One Manual. They have separate categories of rules and constitutional provisions and legislation, and it's divided into several areas. So the autonomy classification has certain provisions that are unique to it and apply only to it. Then there are division provisions that apply on a division by division basis, a division specific basis. So you have all these separations, but the the only Provisions that are association-wide are labeled as dominant provisions, and the legislative authority and process section of Article Five of the NCAA Constitution says a dominant provision is a regulation that applies to all members of the association and is of sufficient importance to the entire membership that it requires two-thirds majority vote of all delegates present and voting in joint session at an annual or special conventions. Dominant provisions are identified by an asterisk. This constitutional committee is going to present its recommendations or its options at a convention. They can only be made with respect to areas of authority and process that relate to association-wide authorities. That's really important here because when you go through the 451-page Division I manual, there aren't that many provisions that really are association-wide. And you have basically Article One of the Constitution, name, purposes, and fundamental policy. And then you have Article Two of the NCAA Constitution, which I've talked a lot about, but I'm going to go through in some detail in this separate episode. But that's titled Principles for Conduct of Intercontinental collegiate athletics, and it has all these fluffy principles that the NCAA virtue signals around, but doesn't have legislation to enforce. And then, and this is really important for the purposes of this constitutional committee, Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution, titled Organization, talks about the various governing boards at the Division I level. It also talks about the Board of Governors. But at the very beginning of this organizational constitutional article, you have certain guarantees that the association makes to the entire association. And one of the most important ones is budget allocations. So, Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution gives uh, specific rights to Divisions 2 and 3 to receive revenue from the quote-unquote general operating revenue of the NCAA, which means the March Madness money. And I'm going to get in a second here to how Gates talked about the interests of divisions two and three, and that's so important here because that is one way that the NCAA makes itself relevant as a national governing authority now, because it is the one that spreads this money around because general operating revenue is, is just March Madness money. That's the long and short of it. And This is all about the money. It's about taking the money and spreading it around. But those are uh, dominant provisions. They have the asterisks, which means that this constitutional committee has the authority to make changes in those areas. And what the Knight Commission is suggesting is that some of these allocations be fundamentally altered to include football revenue, and that's not going to go down well with the Power Five. They've been fighting since the 1970s to acquire independent authority and independent control of their money, and they sued the NCAA and the Board of Regents' decision to get it. They ain't giving that up, not without a fight. So I don't know the extent to which that's on the table in this constitutional committee that is not controlled by the Power Five. And then I want to also talk about the Board of Governors because the Board of Governors. Uh, the composition of it and its duties and authorities is an association-wide issue. It is a dominant provision and it has the asterisk. So the composition and the duties and responsibilities and the election and the term of uh, office, the committee chair and the independent members, all are subject to this association-wide governance and would be subject to change through this constitution committee. And that's important because I have pointed out the obvious conflicts of interest. This is just the ultimate inside dealing here. And the crossover between the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors is indefensible. So this would be a golden opportunity for the NCAA to overhaul its selection of the Board of Governors and to overhaul this crossover representation that is mandated by Article IV of the NCAA Constitution. And uh, back to the interview. And then Katz asks a pretty good question. I, I think it was pre-plant. I think that Gates wanted to get this into the narrative because this is important and goes directly to NCAA relevance at the national level. But Katz asks, uh, Division two and Division 3 don't want massive change. Are there any things that are non-negotiable in the Constitution Committee's evaluation of an overhaul of the Constitution? And Gates says what's most important to Division Two and Division Three is the percentage allocation of funding they get from the NCAA. And in Article Four of the NCAA Constitution, it specifically sets forth that percentage allocation. It is currently set at least. For, for, let me back up for Division Two. That percentage allocation of total operating revenue, which again is the March Madness money, but division two shall receive at least 4.37% of the association's annual revenue. And then division three shall receive at least 3.18% of the association's annual operating revenue. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think in the last pre-COVID budget that both divisions got more than that minimum share and combined the allocations to divisions two and three was upwards of a hundred million dollars. That's meaningful money. And then Gates goes on to say that the reality we face is we need a two-third majority of all members to amend the constitution. And I, read you that provision. Again, that only applies to the areas that are truly association-wide areas and issues, and those are very limited. And then he says Division two and Division three comprise about two-thirds of the total membership. And that's important because in so many other aspects of NCAA regulation, the weighted interests towards football interests at the board of governors and the division one board of directors and then down into the division one council give the power five extraordinary power but when it comes to amending the constitution you really have a one school one vote approach and it takes two-thirds of the total membership so this is a fundamentally different legislative dynamic for the Power Five. And if two-thirds of the schools are benefiting from this downstream March Madness money, and that's non-negotiable, then nothing's going to be done unless that's protected first. And that is a way to make the NCAA relevant at the national level and to preserve the NCAA administrative state. That's the long and short of it. And he says that we have to make sure that Division Two and Division Three are, quote, content with what we come up with. Interestingly, in that description, Gates does not specifically mention the March Madness money and the reliance of the NCAA National Office on that money, that sole source of revenue. And that was a purposeful vagueness, I think. And Gates didn't really want to get into the fact that you have this tension between the football interest and all the money they have access to, and then the the sole reliance on March Madness money. That also brings up some of the equity issues and putting the burden exclusively on high-level Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African American. And then further, that the Division II and Division Three interests are overwhelmingly white. And th- that's just the, the nature of the market and this unwieldy system trying to bring all these interests together under one umbrella. And another thing I just want to point out on this, the authorities issue and where the Constitution Committee can legislate. Dietz talks about the infractions and enforcement process, but the infractions and enforcement process is not implemented at the national level association-wide. It's not one size fits all for each of the three divisions. There are very important distinctions in the infractions and enforcement programs between divisions one two and three and changes can only be made there at the divisional level and that may have been one reason why the division one board of directors wanted to make clear that this has to run through a divisional process some of the things they're talking about and then it could also influence this the transformation committee the formation of that committee and then it could also have influenced what happened with this ncaa accountability act but when you look at the division one manual and operating by law 19 that relates to the infractions program, it is the only infractions program across the three divisions that has the independent accountability resolution process. And the reason for that is that it's only in Division I and in the high-stakes Power Five cases in Division One, where you have the really important issues that the power players want to protect and the enforcement and infractions processes with respect to big-time football and big-time men's basketball are really all that matters. But the NCAA and this Constitution Committee does not have the authority to put infractions and enforcement on the table through an amendment to the NCAA Constitution because it is not an association-wide issue. It is a division-specific issue. And Division Two and Division Three have a much more streamlined infractions and enforcement process, which reflects the fact that there really are no high-stakes cases in Divisions Two and Divisions Three because none of those products make money. There's There's simply, the stakes simply don't exist in the way that they exist in the sports that fund the entire NCAA and the entire marketplace and fund all the downstream beneficiaries. You're just in two different worlds. And the differences in the rules, in the infractions and enforcement process across the three divisions reflect that. And I I think the same may be true with any incorporation of name, image, and likeness issues into the thinking of the Constitution Committee, because how how are you going to put that into NCAA legislation? The NCAA refused to do that for two years. And they had a piece of legislation that was ready to go for over eight months, and then they... Pulled the plug on that when they lost control of the process in the Senate after the January special election switched control of the Senate from Republicans to Democrats. So what's that going to look like? Who knows? So we'll wait and see what comes out in terms of the options that Gates referred to and what this Constitution Committee is going to put on the table and what it can properly put on the table, given the limited room to maneuver in the truly association-wide issues as identified in the existing NCAA Constitution and Division One manual. So we just have to, to wait and see there. But again, There's a lot going on behind the scenes here, and this approach that the Knight Commission wants to use to try to tap into the football money, that's a non-starter with the Power Five, and that's going to cause enormous angst if the Constitution Committee wants to try to change the language of the NCAA Constitution to create a pathway for that. Maybe not now, but maybe in the future. And I don't think there's going to be any discussion about changing the allocations to divisions two and three, which means that the March Madness money is off the table. And Gates said as much. He didn't specifically say March Madness, but that revenue, the NCAA's revenue is off limits. And that is a backdoor way to say the NCAA national office bureaucracy is off limits. The status quo for Mark Emmert and all these grossly overpaid executives and these ridiculous Ridiculous expenses that they have and the private jets and the, you know, all of the whining and dining, all that garbage that the in-system stakeholders don't want to take a look at. But all that's off-limits. It is off-limits. And that tells me right off the bat that this this Constitution Committee is really just a desperate attempt for the NCAA National Office bigwigs to hold on to their largess and to preserve the NCAA national office bureaucracy. So again, some of these things will reveal themselves as the committee is required to put out some work product and we'll see exactly what it looks like. So now I'm going to transition back. Into today, November 9th. So, what you just heard is what I recorded yesterday. And now, with the benefit of the Constitution Committee's work product, or at least its initial framing of the new Constitution, I will begin with that in the next episode. And as I go through that, it will raise some other issues that I identified yesterday as issues I wanted to address going forward. And those will include. The this tension that still is apparent to me between the Power Five interests and the other NCAA interests and uh, the Power Five interests versus some of these external advocacy groups like the Knight Commission. And I went back and looked at some of the Knight Commission stuff last night, and they actually have been more aggressive in inserting themselves into this discussion than I had realized. So I want to talk about what they have proposed and what the thinking is generally from these outside advocacy groups and when you look at some of their work product it was is very ncaa friendly i talked about that a little bit in my discussion of carol cartwright and her involvement with the infractions and enforcement process and the basketball related scandals and how her role as a former chair of the knight commission and i think she's still a member of the knight commission created some real tension there. And I think that it's important to understand the perspective, the the fundamental default settings of these external advocacy groups like the Knight Commission, like the Drake Group, like a handful of academic writers who have offered critiques of college sports. They're all coming from the perspective of protecting institutional interests. And as Gates acknowledged, this discussion has turned so, somewhat away from that and really to looking at honestly, the athlete issues through the lens of athlete interests. And these external advocacy groups just don't speak that language. It's like they're speaking athletes' interests as a second language. And it's important to understand that, I think, in assessing the recommendations that they make, which are largely aligned with NCAA interests at the macro level. So we'll break that down. And then, of course, I want to look at this transformation committee, this Division I Board of Directors transformation committee, the role that I think that it will play going forward. We'll get into all that stuff in the next episodes. And so I'll just go ahead and close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Boop, boop,